Over the past few years, I have asked you guys to give me a rating and review. And if you've done that, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's so helpful. But if you haven't, I get it. I kind of get it. Like, I'm asking you to go and click on this thing and then like, how do I do it? And then I have to come up with some kind of a review and I don't know what to say and I'll do it later, right? I, I get it. I've, I've kind of been there before. I, I know exactly how you feel. And so I'm not asking you to do that now, okay? What I'm asking you to do now is so easy. Anybody can do it and it literally takes like one second. Go into whatever you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on, they all have it, and just click on the subscribe button. Just subscribe. It takes one second. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with a review and write it all out and you know be self-conscious about it. Just hit that subscribe button. That would be so, so, so impactful for me. And if you're enjoying this and getting a lot out of it, that would mean the world to me. It really would. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Like, let's literally stop listening right now. Stop listening. Go and do it. That's how much it means to me. Nobody ever asks you to leave their show and stop listening for anything. But I'm asking you to stop listening right now. Go and just quickly subscribe. Come right back and take a listen. That would mean the world to me. I would really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. They'll go into like a, a midterm follow-up and then that's when automation starts. There'll be text messages and perhaps sometimes ringless voicemail and emails, right? We'll, we'll go into that like long-term automated drip and then that will trigger a phone call, but less frequently, like you know, maybe six months later before we're like our CRM tells us to pick up the phone call. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being here for another live Q&A replay. Uh, this was a fun one. It was a, a lot of fun, actually. A lot of interaction, live interaction. That's always the best. Uh, but we had some good questions sent in, too. Uh, we talked about how I funded my first deal. I got that question. How did you fund your first deal, right? Somebody trying to do their first deal, trying to figure out how they're going to fund it. I told the story of how I funded mine. Um, another person called in asking about they wanted to bring their team back into the office three days a week in 2023. And they're getting a lot of pushback. And how would I handle that? And uh, that was probably one of the longest answers I gave um, because I had a lot of thoughts about it. Uh, another person asked me uh, if they're in college and they want to be a buy and hold investor, uh, but they're in college and they wanted to figure out some strategies to get prepared. So we answered that one. Uh, like I said, lots of live interaction, talking about making offers and going in for reductions and um, follow-up sequences for my CRM and just all uh, land contract um, type deals, all kinds of stuff. Really, really good stuff packed with information, guys. This is a good one. I think you're going to love it. Grab a notebook and a pen and get ready to take notes. I think you're going to need it. All right, guys, I give you my latest live Q&A. All right. Thank you for being here. I'm back. It is Wednesday, January 4th, uh, 2023, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I am here for you to answer your real estate questions. This is a live Q&A that I do. Uh, you can log on, be live with your questions. If you're live tonight, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, I have questions lined up if you're not um, live and you're listening to this on replay somewhere. Uh, if you're on my page watching on a replay, I have uh, a lot of questions lined up that I'm going to answer for you 
let's dive into tonight's uh, questions. And it looks like we've got somebody on here. Uh, Nick uh, just said, thanks. Nick, you're here all the time. So thank you. Thanks for participating and making this fun for me. Uh, I love answering questions, but I love answering qu live questions more. It's, I'll be honest with you. It's just, it's more fun for me when the questions come live. And so Thanks for jumping on and thanks for asking questions and and participating and making this this not just in, uh, informative and good for you guys, but fun for me. That's really the fun part for me. Uh, let's see, Doug, what do you have to say? I'm going to put you to work tonight. <laughs> good. I'm working on my first wholesale deal and have two questions. All right. When I sent it out to my buyers list, I had two people ask for comps. <clears throat> I did not provide an ARV or sample estimates. I gave them my comps and one wanted to argue about them and ask for a lower price. Uh, the other person was just being lazy, I think. Do you give comps when asked? Um, no, we don't provide comps. We're not a comp service. I'm not going to go and ask my, my dispo guy to run comps and give them to people. If somebody asks me for an ARV, I'll give it to them. I'll tell them what I think it's worth. Uh, but that's it. It's a number, right? If they say, well... What do you think it's worth? And I'll just say, you know, 150,000. That's what I think the ARV is. And if they want to go, well, if they want to start arguing it, I'll go, okay, fine. Come up with your own ARV. I'm, I'm out. I'm just, you asked me, so I told you. Uh, but if you don't like it, go run comps, right? I, I mean, I don't, I don't like being mean to buyers and I, and I probably would soften it a little bit, but essentially that's, that's what I would say. I'm not running comps for you because here's the thing. The reason I don't even give an ARV or repair estimates or anything like that, because I know that any house flipper or landlord or whoever's buying it that has any intention whatsoever of buying this house that I'm putting out, they don't even really want my comps or my repair estimates because they're going to run their own. Mine are irrelevant. doesn't matter what I think it's going to be worth. They need to know what they think it's going to be worth. And like I said, any buyer who's seriously going to buy it, like a real serious buyer, they're not even really going to really care about my comps. Not, they may look at them, but it doesn't matter to them. They're going to run their own comps. If they ask you for comps and they ask you for repair estimates, I can almost guarantee you that person's not buying the house. They are so green and so clueless that they're never going to pull the trigger. They're just making you do work. And, and I refuse to do people's work for them. We have a big enough business and enough going on on our own. Okay. Uh, second question from Doug. I'm going to have to go back to the seller for a price reduction. She was, oh, I should put these up on the screen, guys. Sorry if you're watching this. I'm going to have to go back to the seller for a price reduction. She was asking 170 I told her my number was 155, but we agreed on 165 because it was her deceased father's house and she got emotional and I caved. Okay, that's honest. I did tell her that I think I can get, and that's where you stopped. I think I can get, I think you, I, I ran out of characters probably. My thing won't, won't, won't go beyond that. Um, uh, but I, I'm assuming you told her that you think you can get 165. I'm not sure where the question is because I think you got cut off. Uh, oh, I see. Here we go. I can go back. Hang on. Let me let me hide this for a minute. It just won't go all up on my screen, but I yeah, I do see it all. Okay. I did tell her that I think I can get it done at 165, but maybe not. She has had a couple of offers around 125. I'm concerned that if I go back to negotiate, she may try to find somebody else. Um, well, I mean, I I always and Doug, I I know you know me well enough. I I always 
um, think it's really important when you're signing contracts for more than you really want to sign them for, you know, you kind of, you kind of compromise and go a little closer to their number that you always set them up for the price, potential price reduction. In this case, you're telling me that she got offers around 125. Um, I assume that's when you signed the contract, she had offers. If she had offers for 125 and you offered her 155, where do you think you need to be? Because can you just, I don't know what offers you're getting. Um, you didn't, I don't think you told me that in either part of the question. So do you have to go lower than 125? Is that, is it required to go that much lower to get, to get this thing done? You know, because if you just go down to 125, she didn't have offers better than that. It sounds like. And so I'd try to go down to 125, but the, the key is in all of this is when you sign the contract, when you're in that first initial uh, meeting and you're signing the deal up, you've got to set them up. Okay. I'm good at 155. Okay. Yeah, she's not gonna. Why she's not gonna yank it from you if you're still thirty thousand dollars higher than the other offers that she was getting. I think you're fine, but um, okay, good. I think you're fine, uh, but the cautionary tale here for everyone listening, including you, Doug, is whenever you go to a number that you're not as comfortable with, you have to set that table ahead of time and say, Mister, Mrs. Seller, I came in here authorized and prepared to offer you up to and not to exceed 155. But I have agreed to go a little higher um, because I think perhaps we can make it work at that price. But you have to give me a little bit of time. I'm going to go back to my investors. I'm going to talk to my team. We're going to look at our repair estimates again and see if we can get this thing to work at 165. But if in 10 days, if in five days, if in 14 days, whatever you, you negotiate, if I come back and say, listen, I, I re-ran the numbers, I talked to all my investors, all the money people, and we just can't go past 155, I will tell you that in 10 days. Or I'll come back and say, hey, we can do 165. We can meet your number, okay? But I'm going to come back and just give you an honest answer, and I'm going to be very transparent. And at that point, if you want to walk away, you can. But if you're interested in talking about a slight reduction at that point, then that's that's something we'll discuss. But I'll just come back and give you an honest answer. That's the best I can do. But I only need 10 days. I'm not going to ask three months or, or six months like a realtor might. So give me 10 days and I'll come back and give you a very honest answer. So that's kind of the, the short version of what we say. Um, yeah, Corey, Doug, be sure to leave the door open with a seller. Try to get a solid buyer a number and say 165, then go back to her and say we can get. Yeah, exactly. You, you have to set the table for the potential uh, conversation about a price reduction in 10 days, right? But that's 10 days that they've had to psychologically feel like this deal is going to be done. They, she found a buyer or they found a buyer. Um, you know, it's just psychologically, they kind of have moved past it a little bit. So when you come back, First of all, you told them that you were going to come back potentially. Well, you told them you're going to come back 100%, but you might have news that that isn't what they want to hear. And so when you come back, usually it's not a bad conversation. They kind of expected it. So, um, but you get to set that up front, though. That's very important. It's very hard to go back for a price reduction when a price reduction wasn't even talked about on, on the initial signing. Now people are going to be angry. You go, you had a contract and you're coming back and ask for a reduction. It's coming out of the blue, right? So you don't want it to come out of the blue. So set that conversation up ahead of time. It'll go way better. All right. Uh, Jamie says, hi, Mike. How much price reduction are you considering when buying apartment complex? Wow. That is an impossible question. 
what is the cost of the complex? What's the situation of the seller? What's the market look like? You know what I mean? There's a lot, there's a million questions. And, and then I also should tell you, I don't really buy apartments. So I'm not probably the best guy to talk. I mean, to me, negotiate is negotiation. Uh, somebody who buys single family homes could go in and negotiate an apartment complex, but I don't buy them. And it's just like, there is no set number that you reduce when you're buying an apartment complex. Like, were they way overvalued? Were they way undervalued? Were they right at the right value? You know, what's what's the situation? There, there would be a hundred questions, but at some point I would get out of my league. And so I don't want to, I don't, unfortunately, I can't get super deep in the weeds with apartments because I don't buy them yet. All right, guys, I see nothing else live. I'm going to go to the questions that I had sent to me real quick. Oh, something just popped through. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry. You're thanking me, but I couldn't really help you. But that's nice. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, so the first question I got for tonight was, I am a new investor looking to get started. And I'm wondering how you funded your first deal, taking an informal poll to examine my options. Um, it was a long time ago for me and I wouldn't do it the same way again, probably. Maybe I would, but I probably would try to be smarter about it. What I did was I purchased the property itself with a standard traditional mortgage. I went to a mortgage company, the same company that I bought my house with and told them I wanted to buy a, um, an investment property. And so they funded the property and then I used cash and credit cards to fund the renovation. Uh, and I, I was flipping it. And so that's how I did it. And so the I, I had to make a monthly payment, you know, just like any other mortgage. And then we had the money on hand, cash and credit, like I said, and that's how we did the renovation. After that, every property that I flipped for the next several years, I used private money. I raised money uh, from people who wanted to lend to me. And I had to start off with terms that weren't great. I was giving half of the, of the deal to the to the lender. And so that's fine to get started. And then eventually I stopped giving half and I started just paying, you know, a rate of return, you know, eight, nine, 10%, depending on the situation. Um, but the first one was a standard traditional mortgage and just scrapping together all of the money that I had available to me, cash and credit to get the renovation done. That's how we did it. Pretty straightforward. I probably, if I was going to do it again, I would start working immediately on raising private money. Um, and I would probably use like a hard money lender if I had to, if I had no private money available, <clears throat> I would I would use a hard money lender probably to to fund it. Just uh, yeah, that's how I would do it. All right, next question. Let's see here. Um, I want to get my team back into an office at least three days per week in 2023. I'm getting a lot of pushback. Thoughts? Um. You know, people have gotten a little bit comfortable with being out of the office um, since COVID. Um, so that's that's a common um, that's a common struggle, I think, with people are having a hard time getting everyone back into the office once they've had a taste of being at home. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to go all Elon Musk on on people, but it's your company. If you want them to be in the office, then they need to come to the office. If they don't want to come to the office and it's that important to them to not come to the office, then uh, maybe your company is not the right company, right? You can't, you can't have people refusing to come in, I guess. I mean, I, I would say, I apologize that you don't want to come in. You know, it sounds like when you say you want to get your team back into the office, they used to be in the office. So you're not, you're, it's not like you hired them under false pretenses. You didn't hire them and say, you don't have to come to the office. 
you had him in the office. You stopped coming to the office for health reasons for everybody. It sounds like that time has passed. It's time to come back to the office. This is what you want. And if they don't want that, if that doesn't line up with their current lifestyle, you might find somebody else. It's that simple. I mean, at some point for me, you're talking to a guy. I mean, I'm a Gen X, right? So you're talking to a guy that I don't, I don't know that I would, um, I would get into a heavy negotiation with people that work for me, that I pay a salary or a commission um, to come back in the office or not. Like if you want them back, then then you come back. If the but, you know, everything is uh, a meritocracy. If you if that person or people who say they don't want to come back into the office. If they are an absolute rock star and a cornerstone of your business and somebody that really makes and breaks your your company, you might have to make an exception. Maybe that person doesn't have to come back, right? It's like to use a football analogy, you know, a, a coach, Jimmy Johnson, he used to coach Dallas Cowboys, who I'm a fan of. Uh, he He one time said, he he treats everyone fairly, but he doesn't treat everyone equally, right? And so the starters and the superstars on the team, they got a little more leeway. They got a little more slack. The second string people, the, the people who were barely, you know, making the team, they got no leeway, right? They screwed up. They didn't come to meetings. They were late for meetings. You know, they didn't do something they're supposed to do. Gone. You don't do that with your starters. But, you know, so everyone's treated fairly. It's not equally. So that may be the situation, right? I would tend toward you're all coming back and we're going to make the best of this. It's, it can be great. I, you know, I wouldn't try to make it a horrible environment, obviously. But if they want him to come back, there must be a reason. And and I, I could get that. You know, there might be a little more productivity, a little more, you know, team, a feel of team and all that camaraderie. That's, you know, I, I see it. I would want to probably if I had an office, I would want everyone back in the office now, too. hundred percent. I would have wanted them back a year ago, probably. We, we went all virtual uh, right before COVID, actually, before COVID even was a thing that anybody had ever heard of. We went virtual and we've never gone back, but we did it because we wanted to. And everyone was pretty happy about it, actually. And so we just decided we all liked it. We're not going back to the office. We're not going to do that anymore. So I just say it's time to go back. It's time to go back. And if you have, for example, like an acquisitions person or something who's just like an absolute stone cold killer. And they don't want to come back to the office. Yeah, maybe you have to work around that a little bit. Kind of come up, come with a compromise or come to an agreement of some kind where you don't lose them. But if a B player, C player says they don't want to come back, just find somebody else who does want to go in the office. Sounds harsh, guys, but that's honestly at some point, you know, we got to we gotta run the business the way we want to run it. Because ultimately, you're trying to run your business and be successful so that you can not only pay yourself, but pay them and and support, you know, their families and and help them grow and pay their bills and and thrive and all that good stuff. So it's not like you're telling them to come back to torture them. You're you're telling them to come back, I'm assuming for a very good reason. You think it's just gonna be more productive or better for the business. It's time to come back. Simple as that. All right. Uh, let's see. Okay, Mike Smith, are you using automated follow-up? Uh, or are you having people manually phone leads in your um, CRM? So we do use automated follow-up, but only after a, a point, right? So if somebody calls in uh, or you know for, fills out a form for PPC or whatever, 
and they 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 get into our world and they have a house that they want to sell but for whatever reason they they're not ready to sell to us right now for whatever reason right it can be various reasons we'll put them in like a hot follow-up um kind of a bucket and that bucket will reach out to them manually like a, a real person will reach out call them you know in a couple of weeks or a month if they said give us a few weeks we'll call them back in a few weeks if they said try us in the spring we'll call them in the spring but it'll be an actual person who's like following up pretty um pretty rigorously for a while and if they kind of go a little dark or they you know like ah we're not going to sell anymore whatever they'll go into like a, a midterm follow-up and then that's when automation starts there'll be text messages and perhaps sometimes ringless voicemail and emails right we'll, we'll go into that like long-term automated drip and then that will trigger a phone call, but less frequently, like you know, maybe six months later before we're like our CRM tells us to pick up the phone and call them. Um, and so it, it kind of, it, there is some automation, but usually the automation kicks in when it becomes like a warmer, colder lead, you know, something that we don't really think is going to happen anytime soon. We'll just put them on a, on a drip, you know, it's automated at that point. But if somebody calls in and they want to sell, and then like if this happens if you're if you ever talk to sellers you know this happens they'll call in and it sounds great they want to sell they want to talk to their husband talk to their wife talk to their lawyer whatever right they want to they 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 kind of push back for a minute like ah not not right now but I'll call you back and and set an appointment so you guys can come out and talk to me and then they go black they don't ever call you they're not returning calls we'll we'll stay on that person pretty hard until we get back in touch with them and they either say yes come on out Let's talk about this. Or they say, no, stop calling me. We're not selling anymore. You know what I mean? Like if they seem interested and they kind of give us that thumbs up that they want to sell, we are going to be ever present in their life. We are going to call them and text them, not abusively or aggressively, but persistently, right? Kind of like on the edge of being a little bit pushy, but not quite there. Like we want, because the reason I say that and the reason we do that is because if they called us and said they want to sell, guess what they've called other people they've called your competitors and said they want to sell and your competitors are right there you know answering the phone and calling so they have more than us probably calling them and trying to get that deal done so we'll stay on them pretty good so because you know out of sight out of mind if they talk to us and say they want to sell and then for whatever reason they kind of push back and, and they tell us to give us some time and in the meantime they talk to another investor they've already forgotten about us we're we're far in the rear view, rear view mirror and they just have that investor on their mind. And so we want to keep inserting ourselves and just saying, hey, we're here. Remember, you talked to us and we wanted to help you. We still want to help you. We want to stay in the game. We want to at least stay in that competition for that property. So that's why we stay on them pretty good. But when they say leave us alone or, hey, we're not going to sell or like call us back in six months, you know, we back off. We put them on a slow drip and then we call them in six months. That's pretty much how we do it. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Another question from the emails. I am currently in college and I know I want to get into buy and hold investing. What are some strategies I could be doing now to help get prepared for when I'm ready to start investing? Okay. I'm a fan and I am a believer in you can invest in real estate passively, certainly anytime. <clears throat> you can do it while you're in college. You can do it while you have a full-time job. But if you really just want to kind of get some information and get in the game a little bit, learn before you buy, 
I totally respect that too. The best thing you can do as someone who's a future buy and hold investor is either go work for a property management company because that will really educate you fast and effectively on what it takes to be a buy and hold investor on the on the hold side, right? What happens after you buy the property and renovate it? Like what are the tenant issues? How do you screen tenants? What's the software and automations that you should set up? How do you hire handymen? How do you track their work? Like how do you pay them? All that stuff that you that you may need to know as a buy and hold investor if you're going to manage your own stuff. That's a great way to get an education. The other thing you could do is go and work for a buy and hold investor, right? Go into a, a organization or company that actually goes out, identifies undervalued properties, negotiates a price, buys them, hires contractors to renovate the property and get it rent ready. Like you'll see that whole, you know, the whole uh, evolution of that deal if you're work. So the bottom line is work, go work for somebody and really go work for them for free, like offer to work for them for free. Do you know how impressive and refreshing that would be for an investor who's a buy and hold investor to say, listen, I just want to learn the industry. I'm eager. I'm in college right now. I'm not ready to get started, but I really want to learn from somebody who has experience like you. I want to work for you and you don't have to pay me. I just want to see the process and I just want to have access to you. That's incredibly powerful. You go in there and, and start asking for, you know, 15 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, 25 bucks an hour. They can hire anybody for that. They don't need somebody, you know, who's split between college and them, right? You're kind of, you have other obligations, college. So I would go work for somebody for free for until you're out of college and then get start, start doing it. Or if you're impatient like me and you're like, I don't want to wait and I don't want to work for somebody go start buy a course, right? Work, reach out to me, work with me, like find somebody who who's in the space and pay them for their knowledge, like pay them to understand what you have to do and kind of, you know, crash through all the BS that you don't have to figure out on your own, right? You don't need to do trial and error when you hire someone who did trial and error and figured it all out and got to the other side and has success, go seek them out and, and ask for their help. Maybe you find a mentor, a local mentor who you don't have to pay. Somebody who's who's been a buy and hold investor for you know twenty years and they they know the ropes. Go see if they'll if they'll mentor you. Like whatever you have to do, go out and do it to get started. But if you don't want to get started till after college, that's totally understandable. Go work for somebody for free and just pick their brain and watch watch how it works. Okay, uh, let's get back in here. Uh, let's see, Mike Smith, what are your follow up sequences in the short term? What about long-term? So the hot leads, we're calling them three times a week. Like we're not letting many days go by before we call them. And it's all it's all phone calls and texts. There's no emails or anything. It's all phone, all phone calls and texts. Long-term, I'd have to pull it up, the cadence. But, you know, if it's a long-term cold lead, somebody that has very low chance of us actually um, buying from them anytime soon, but we just don't want to. But they didn't say, we'll never sell. They just made it sound like they're not selling anytime soon. It's like once a month, once every couple of months. Well, it'll be like alternate between um, uh, email and text every, like every other month, right? Just kind of a slow, just just enough that they can't completely forget about us. Or, you know, you don't talk to them for a year and then in a year you like send them a text. They're not going to remember who you are, right? So people are going to forget after a month or two. So we don't let more than that go by before we reach out to them. Okay, um, can't Bob, what's up? Bob, you're on vacation, man. You're logging in on vacation. 
That's awesome. Can you tell us why you like the land contract model? <laughs> yeah, I can. So Bob is a friend of mine uh, who's out of the country on vacation, having a blast. Um, and for some reason, he's thinking about work and logging in here, man. He's just an awesome guy. So the reason I like the land contract model and what that is, if you're listening to this and you don't know, we, my company, will I will we hold we do a lot of wholesaling, right? So we do a lot of marketing, and and some of that marketing we wholesale, like we have been for several years. We'll wholesale it out, but now we've sort of added something to our business where some properties we get that meet a certain criteria, we will buy them. Like we will. We'll bring in private money, we'll buy the property outright. Then we will resell that property on terms, right? Like owner finance terms. But when people say owner finance in our industry, they're usually talking about buying it from a seller on owner finance, right? The seller owns it free and clear. And we come up with a payments and an interest that is acceptable to both parties and we we buy that property. Well, I'm I'm kind of doing it differently. We're buying the property for cash, right? We're buying it. We own it. And then we are the sellers that are selling it on terms. We call it land contract here in Michigan. We're selling it on land contract to the buyer who wants to be a homeowner, right? The reason I like it so much is I had about 25 rentals at the height of my portfolio, right? Not a ton, but enough. And the reason I like land contract is because with those rentals, I bought 25 of them within two or three years of each other. And like seven years later, six years later, there were some deferred, not, not deferred, but there was some capital expenditures that started coming through, right? There were some leaky roofs. There were some furnaces, there were some mechanicals, some electrical stuff, some plumbing, like all of these repairs started coming out of the woodwork. And it was like, it was like a popcorn popper every month, every couple of months, there was another house with a major expense. Now these houses, I was cash flowing like two to 400, maybe two to like 350 per door. And so when you have a $6,000, $8,000 roof, that's eating up your cash flow for a year or more, right? It's a long time. And when they start piling up on each other, every once in a while, you have a catastrophic repair. I had a repair once um, that was a, a sewer issue. And it was a sewer that the issue started in the house and all the piping, all the drains and everything that went out to the road, all of it was like roots going through. It was terrible. And I kept trying to fix it as inexpensively as possible. And so I had the plumber go out and they were like, you know, you know, like run a, like a road router kind of a thing. And then they had to like cut up some of the basement cement, like jackhammer it and replace it. And they thought that would be good. And that didn't work. So they do a little more, a little more, a little more. Because I did it that way and I didn't just go do the whole thing right now, it ended up being a $20,000 problem, right? Which sounds just stupid. Like you could, it never should cost that much. But because of the way I did it, I tried to do the least amount possible and it kept just, I needed more and more and more. It was like $20,000. What do you think that does in my cash flow, right? It's terrible. So with land contract, you don't really own the property. You're holding the note, like you're holding the mortgage, like, like, Chase Bank or a mortgage company, but they are the owners. So when the roof goes bad, when the plumbing goes bad, 
when the toilet breaks, <coughs> it's all them. We don't get repair calls ever because we don't own the house. They do. And they own it. And so they're used to being renters. Now they're homeowners. They're happy. We're happy because we're not fixing and repairing anything. And, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing for both people. That's what we love about it. I don't love being a landlord. I, I really like being a bank. So we're just being the bank. Okay. Um, Doug, join the local REIA and start networking. Yeah, that's the advice for the uh, for the college kid, I think, right? Yeah, definitely. Go to RIA's and meetups, all that stuff, for sure. When you're new, you should always go to that stuff. Um, it doesn't hurt when you've been doing it a while. I just think there's a point of diminishing returns to RIA's and, and meetups. When you go initially, um, you need a lot. And so you're, you're getting a lot out of it. And as you kind of get more experience and do more and have more success, you get less, less, less and almost nothing out of it. And pretty soon you're just going to give back, which is totally fine. If you want to give back, you should give back. But you're not going to get a lot out of it, usually, at a certain point. So I don't really go to it myself anymore. Um, I'm feeling that now with my 30 units, I may need this. Yeah, man, let's talk. If you want to get deeper into it, like I can I can step you through the process a little more in depth, like one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but I, it's a great model. I, I really um, I love it, honestly. It's, it's helping our business have a really nice base of revenue every month that's predictable right it comes in every single month and there are no repairs there are no excuses there's no vacancies right it's just we're the bank we're playing the bank and it's always good to be the bank always so um all right i don't know if it looks like nobody else has questions it's totally fine we're kind of at the end of the time here um thanks for being here guys i really appreciate it have a great one. I hope you guys have a fantastic 2023. I truly believe with all my heart and soul, this is going to be an amazing year for investors. A great, great year. And so I'd like to be a part of that for you. If you want to work with me, let's, let's talk. Otherwise, just go get it. Just go after it. Refuse to fail. Refuse to not have a great year. And you will have a good year. All right, guys. We'll see you soon. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay, until next time.